Um, I am uh, what you refer to as Plan B, I guess. I'm the I'm the uh, the runner-up here. Um, Jeff is taking his sons back to college, but the one thing he said I had to do was start on time. So I want to be able to tell him. My computer says 9:30, so let's um, let's begin with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pause here at the beginning of the day to thank you for the gift of your holy word, for the gift of your son, Jesus, and for the gift of his parables. And we ask, Lord God, that you would take this brief amount of time that we have together and use it, not only to illumine our minds, but to move our hearts. For we ask these things in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, Jeff is um, taking his sons back to college. He will be returning tomorrow, so um, please be mindful of him in, in prayer as he makes that return trip. And just one announcement. Some have asked if his outlines are available, and I'm told that they're on the website. I've not actually you know, clicked my mouse on them, but I'm told they're somewhere on the website. So if you're looking for them, go to our website, and if you have any trouble, um, they're there. All right. Chloe says they're there. All right. You will testify. You should have said amen, you know, when I said. Uh, um, well, obviously, we're talking about the parables. And you all have spent, I trust, some, some time with Jeff, has been, been walking through several of the parables. And as Jeff has talked about, these are, um, in some ways, stories that on the face of it look simple. But as Jeff said, they're not simplistic. Um, these are deceptively simple, simple stories, but deceptive in the sense that simple on the surface, but they teach us, Jesus teaches us profound things about the nature of God and his heart, about the kingdom and what does it mean to be a subject of God's kingdom, and thirdly about uh, the brokenness of the human heart. Obviously, these are very weighty, deep subjects, and it's amazing how God, uh, Jesus took these simple stories and used these stories, these parables, um, to bring these things to light, um, not only, again, to illumine the mind, but to move our hearts, to move our hearts. Well, today we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and contained in that chapter are actually three parables, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and a parable that's sometimes referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Um, that's a picture of <laughs> yours truly out there with a, with a little lamb on my shoulders. We, we got to... Um, pay someone, I don't know, so many 20 shekels or something like that in, in the Holy Land and um, get this picture. So that's what that is. We're going to use that this morning. Um, primarily, we're, we're going to run rather quickly when we get there through the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, so that we can really focus in on the third. And God willing, um, in our time today, really get into um, that third parable. So let's begin by just reading Luke chapter 15 and, um, and diving in. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, 
for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. The father divided his property between them. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, let's, um, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the context for these parables. Um, there is an encounter between Jesus and some persons that precipitates, that brings about, that's the catalyst for these three parables. Now, there are two groups here that, that are present with Jesus. What are the two groups? You have the scribes and the Pharisees, and 
well, the Sadducees aren't here, but yeah, they're a group that, that often sort of looped in, but that's right, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, what's the other group? Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Um, two very different groups. Let's talk about these groups and what they represent, what they mean. Um, how about the first group? How would the Jews have regarded tax collectors and sinners in their day? With scorn, outcast, what else? What, anything else? I mean, why? What, what, what do these people not do or do? or what, What's the problem? Sinning? Uh, uh, and we got cheated them, uh, focusing in on the tax collectors. Of course, the tax collectors are, are kind of turncoats, you know. They, they are, they're they're um, collaborating with the Romans, you know, the enemy, right? So, yeah, they're, they're turncoats. So, yeah, they, they, uh, they cheated them. Uh, what about the sinners? What are the sinners not good about? Fo- following God's law doing the right thing, fulfilling their obligation. Now, what does the passage tell us about what these tax collectors and sinners are doing? Not not grumble, that's that's the Pharisees and the scribes. What about the sinners and tax collectors? They're coming, they're drawing near to hear Jesus. Right, they're drawing near to hear Jesus. Okay, well, that's the first group. What about the next group? What do we know about the Pharisees and the scribes? They're always trying to trick Jesus, exactly. Jesus and these guys are always mixing it up. What else do we know about them? There was that holier than thou. Yeah, a little bit holier than thou, looking down on others. And and what's the basis of their holier than thou attitude? What what do they do that the the sinners aren't doing? Follow the law. They follow the law. These are good, upstanding citizens, right? Well, but they, yes, Jesus calls them out as hypocrites, absolutely. And I think this parable is going to maybe pull some of that out a little bit for us um, if we get that far. That's right. So, so the scribes and the Pharisees, they know the law, they're experts in the law, they study God's law, they follow God's law, and they call on others um, to do the same. Now, so we've got the tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to Jesus. Um, what are the scribes and Pharisees, Nancy, what are the scribes and Pharisees doing? They're grumbling, exactly. They're grumbling. They're upset. Now, why? Why are they grumbling? What, what's their accusation against Jesus? He receives sinners. Yeah, they're jealous. Exactly. Absolutely. There's jealousy here. There's um, anger. But, but, but their accusation that he receives sinners and he, he eats with them. Now, this is, this is significant. Um, in this culture, it's less formal in our culture, although I think if you think about it, you, you'll realize, oh, yeah, this is kind of true for us in a less formal way. But in Jesus' culture, to eat with someone is, is, to, is to receive them, to accept them. So Jesus, simply by virtue of eating with them, um, the accusation, look, he, not only does he talk to these people, which he really shouldn't be doing, but he eats with them. He receives them into his community. Now, um, every time, every Sunday morning when we go up for Holy Communion, we had Holy Communion at 8.15. 8, we'll have morning prayer at the late service today. But anytime we go up um, to, to, the, to the front of the church, um, there are really two major things that are being symbolized there at the front of the church. That, that, that thing up there is referred to by two names. First starts with A, altar. Second starts with T, table. It is both an altar and a table. It's an altar in the sense that we remember that once and for all, Jesus um, was sacrificed for our sins, like, like the lamb that was slain. So in that sense, that brings that to mind as an altar. Um, but it's also a table. 
table bringing to mind, of course, the Last Supper, but more so sending us forward to the last book of the Bible, to the Revelation of John, where the saints will be gathered together when Jesus comes again after he has judged the quick and the dead, and we will be gathered around God's table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The significance is that God is going to receive you at his table. Now, what does the prayer of humble access remind us? Week after week after week, we are not worthy to be at that table. And yet, what does Jesus do? He receives sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. Eats with you and us. Amen. Exactly. And us. Exactly. So every time you go up for communion, in a sense, there are kind of two images that come. Well, several images, but the two main ones, an altar, as you remember that Jesus once and for all gave his life on the cross, the final sacrifice, the only sacrifice that is necessary um, for the salvation of our sins. So it's an altar, but it's also a table reminding us that, that even though this world may not accept us always, even though sometimes we may find it difficult to accept ourselves, God accepts us at his table. He eats with us. So that's the accusation here, that Jesus eats with sinners. That's the context. Um, now, can we figure out from the context, we've got these two groups, really to whom these parables are being spoken. I mean, are these parables for the sinners and the tax collectors, or are they really for the scribes and the Pharisees? Whose heart do you think Jesus is trying to penetrate here? Yeah, primarily the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, there is a little something in here for the sinners and the tax collectors, and we'll pick up on that. But really, the thrust of these three parables, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I will speak to you all. Um, some of you all I have known for a long time. I have lived my entire life in the church. There has never been a time in my life where I have not believed in the presence of God. And certainly, if you were to look at the course of my life, there are times where my life more closely conformed to God's word and God's law. And there are times where my life was a little more wayward. But never have I questioned God or never have I questioned what was right or wrong. I didn't always do what was right, but I always knew what was right. And, and so out of these two, I'll just, I'm just speaking personally, out of these two groups, I mean, I, I, I um, identify with the Pharisees and the scribes. So I recognize that these are parables for PLM, people like me, and maybe PLU, people like you. But um, we will let God speak to your heart. So three parables really for the scribes and the Pharisees, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable so-called of the prodigal son. Let's look briefly at the first um, two parables. I want to reread this one just to, to, to get it in our memory. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Now, anybody in this context hearing this parable, scribes, Pharisees, sinners, tax collectors, anybody there would have been nodding their heads. Yeah, you lose a sheep, you go after it. I mean, this is Jesus is just stating the obvious. But then Jesus adds the clincher. Okay, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Again, that's stating the obvious. Everybody sort of nod their heads. Yeah, Jesus, tell us something we don't know. Just so I tell you. God's like this. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven. 
you're glad when you get a, a, a lamb back. God is glad when he gets a human soul back. Now, people often trip up on this phrase that Jesus uses, righteous persons. Th- this needs to sort of be in air quotes, righteous persons. Jesus knows full well. He knows the heart of every man, man, woman, and child. And, and as it says in, in, in the gospel according to John, Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, and so he never entrusted himself to men because he knows what kind of garbage is, is in here. He knows that, that no one is righteous, no, not one, um, from the book of Romans. Um, but he's kind of playing to the crowd. You know, these are, these are the Pharisees, these are the scribes, these are the rule followers. They think of themselves as righteous, right? So he's kind of playing to the crowd. Um, but the point here is that God's heart is for the lost. Which means that if there is a scoreboard in heaven, I don't think there is a scoreboard, but if there is, the only thing really that counts is souls saved. Lost sheep found now some might scratch their head if you if you'd spend some time pondering this you say okay andrew you, you say that's the the one score and of course i got the two you know it should just be one number it's not two numbers but anyway that's, that was the best i could do but one number basically soul saved uh, but you might be scratching your head and say well andrew i mean doesn't it count in heaven when someone feeds the hungry or cares uh, for the sick or goes and visits prisoners, doesn't that count in heaven? Of course it counts. Of course it counts. Of course these things are part of God's heart, as Jesus very clearly reveals to us. But in the end, what ultimately counts is a soul brought back into relationship with God, because that, my friends, is a healing that lasts forever. You feed a man, you minister to him for a day. You bring him to the Lord, And the Lord will put into his heart a wellspring that lasts forever. And guess what? Out of that wellspring, when a person has come into relationship with God, out of that wellspring is going to come all sorts of acts of love and charity. A person is going to be moved to want to do the very things um, that that Christ calls us to do, to, to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to go and visit prisoners, and so on. So I don't want to create a false dichotomy here between mercy ministries and saving souls. These things should always work together hand in hand. But in the end, God is looking not only to minister to people's temporal needs, those are important, but really he's focused on the eternal. God wants to bring sheep back into his fold. And so for that reason, because this is the yearning of God's heart, because this is, as it were, the, the really the only ultimate scoreboard in heaven that's how we as a church that that's sort of the 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 lens through which we've got to to view everything we do and everything that we're about we can always often as a church sort of get off into things that are good things they're not bad things but but it but we can sort of get off course from from the ultimate good bringing people back into relationship with the living god because there's nothing better than that god's heart is to go find lost sheep that's how we are to align as a church our priorities. It, it's right in line with the, with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Bring sheep back into the fold. Well, the next parable, the lost coin, is essentially reiterating the same point. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Again, everyone's kind of nodding their head. I mean, this is a tenth of of what this woman owns. There's some indication that maybe this is maybe has something to do with it with a dowry. But the point is, this is a significant sum. 
one-tenth of all she has. If you lost one-tenth of what you had, would you not go searching for it? Of course you would. Everybody's nodding their heads. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Everyone says, Yes, of course, Jesus, tell us something we don't know. Just so, I tell you. Just so. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I do want to um, focus on one word here. What, what does that word, that word repent, what, what, is, what does that mean to repent? To turn around, to turn away, to turn back from those things that are not of God. And not just to turn away. We're not just, as Christians, we're not just against. We're also, what are we for? To turn toward Christ. Yeah, God. To turn, to give our lives, to take up our cross and, and follow the Lord. So to repent is to turn away. My point is, People often in reading this, those of us who are, um, you know, again, I put myself in sort of the category of the scribes, the Pharisees. I grew up in the church. I know God's law. I follow God's law. Uh, the, the heart that we can sometimes tend to have is sort of like, well, yeah, God, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be for the lost sheep, but I mean, in the end, aren't we supposed, I mean, these laws are your laws, right? Aren't we supposed to be following them? Well, I mean, the point is Jesus is saying, yes, a, a land that repents, a sinner who repents, who turns around. So yes, Christ is looking for repentance. Um, he's not just saying willy-nilly, it's okay what you do, sinners and tax collectors. He's drawing them to himself that they might repent. But the reality is, friends, sometimes um, we need a little space in which to turn around. I think I've used this illustration here before, but it's incredibly helpful. Um, the reason, that's a cul-de-sac there, it might be hard to see. The reason that cul-de-sacs are shaped the way they are is because sometimes you need a little room to make a, a U-turn. Okay, sinners need a little bit of room sometimes to make a U-turn. So we as a community, even as we are pointing people toward God, um, we need to give them a little space. Jesus is giving these sinners and tax collectors the space they need to turn around. To turn around. Not to say that their sin is okay. Not to say that they are not ultimately called to repent. But to give them a little space to turn around. So that's the parable of the lost coin. Uh, the third parable this parable is the clincher. Um, author and pastor Tim Keller, some of you maybe have um, heard Tim Keller speak or have read some of his books. He's described by some as a, a C.S. Lewis for our age, really a, a, not only a great thinker, but a person who's able to sort of put things in terms that, that, that we can, can understand. Um, he has written a book that I would recommend to you um, called The Prodigal God that really talks about this third parable that we're going to discuss here. And, um, and as he's describing this parable, he says that for me as a Christian, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture because it began to unfold for him um, something about the heart of God. So anyway, um, we're going to talk about it, obviously, this morning. But if you'd like to go deeper, I'd, I commend that book to you. Um, and I'll offer here just a little infomercial as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a class um, starting in the spring written by Tim Keller. It's going to be based on the, on the book that he wrote called The Meaning of Marriage. So that's something that we're going to be offering. It's for single people. It's for couples. It's for old. It's for young. Um, so if that interests you, I would commend that to you as well. But, but Tim Keller points out one of the things he starts with. He says, you know, sometimes this parable, or often it's referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, but really that's, that's a little misleading. Keep in mind that these titles that we give to the parables, Jesus didn't use those titles. We just sort of made them up as a way to refer to, oh, you know the parable of the lost coin. You know the parable of the so-and-so. Well, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, 
Tim Keller suggests that we ought to refer to it as the parable of two lost sons. That's how the parable begins. There was a man with two sons. Those of you who knew Bishop Salmon um, in his life and ministry here in the church, he would sometimes refer to this as the parable of the prodigal father. Um, why? Prodigal, of course, means recklessly spendthrift. In other words, not paying attention. And the father is, is r- reckless in his forgiveness, as we're going to see. So regardless of how you refer to it, the prodigal of the two lost sons or the, prodigal, the, the, the parable of the prodigal father, um, I think either of those get at the heart of it better than the parable of the prodigal son because that's only half of it. And actually it's the half I think we're to pay, in a sense, less attention to. Um, it, it leads up to a climax. Well, let's, um, let, let's turn here to the first section. Um, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he took and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, let me, let me ask you all, what, what is a st- when you think of just stereotypes of older son, younger child, older child, what, what are some of, let's start with older child. What are some of the stereotypes? Not everybody fits this stereotype, but responsible, rule follower. What's that? What's that? Bossy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I won't tell my daughter you said that, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so responsible, rule follower, maybe a little bossy. All right, how about younger child? Oh, (laughs) spoiled. Okay, I thought it spoiled. Okay, what else? Carefree. Easy going. What's that? Maybe a little irresponsible. That would, yeah, that would sort of be the shadow side. What's that? Rebel. Yeah, rebel, rebel. Not going to be conformed to the the molds, the expectations of society. Absolutely. Yeah, and in a sense, this is, this is, this parable is calling to mind, um, some of those stereotypes, absolutely. Well, the, the parable really can be divided into two acts. Um, I think we'll definitely get through Act 1 today. I hope we can get into Act 2. But Act 1 has uh, three scenes in it, and we begin here with the first scene um, where the son says to the father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, I trust that some of you have studied this passage before. What is the son, in essence, saying to his father with this question? I wish you were dead. Yeah, you're dead. You're dead to me. I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in your stuff. Give it to me. Give it to me. Um, It's insulting. It's mean-spirited. And in this culture, which is a shame-based culture, he has shamed his father. I try to think of... um, you know, modern example, and, and I think Tim Keller maybe even used this example to try to sort of get us into this space because we do live in a different culture than they did. But it would be like a, a son, you know, taking out a whole page ad in the newspaper, writing an editorial, um, saying how awful his dad was, or, or, or maybe exposing something his father, publicly humiliating his father. This is public humiliation because these are small communities. Word would have gotten around. This young man um, has humiliated his father, shamed his father. But the father, without comment, does what his son asks. 
the the Greek word that's used there for property is not there's a perfectly good Greek word for property, but that's not the one that 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 um, that's used in Luke's text. It's it's the Greek word bios from which we get biology. In other words, life. He divided his life. And gave the younger son the portion. Now, why? Why life? Because in in this culture, um, you know, this is an agrarian society, a farming society, a, a, a you know, shepherding society. W- your livelihood is not in a bank account. It's in your land and your sheep. So once you divide that up, you, you'd have to sell some property, sell some sheep. And, and you know, and, and it's all that's your livelihood. That's how you put you know, food on the table in a very literal sense. I think, you know, we obviously are disconnected from that, not not living as we do um, in agrarian society. But but I think in general, Southerners still have kind of a, a shadow of this sense about the land and, and being rooted into the land. And um, um, if you come from a different part of the country and you're wondering, you know, what, why are Southerners so what what are they what's all why are they all about the land? There's a, a great book um, called Red Hills and Cotton that talks about um, people of the upstate and, and how they're told over and over again, you don't sell the land, you don't sell the land. Red Hills and Cotton, it's a great book about my people in the up country. <laughs> but anyway, th- there is that real sense um, that he has divided his life. And in this moment, the father has lost his son and he lets him go. It's a reminder to us that God gives us the awful freedom to turn our back on him. A couple of weeks ago, I did my best to preach about um, hell. I mean, that was part of the passage, was hell and the reality of hell. It's a concept that's repugnant in our modern age. But at the root of that reality, it, 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 the reality of hell is the fact that we, God gives us that awful freedom. I mean, it, it's staggering. The freedom to turn our back on him. The freedom to reject him. So picking up at verse 13, um, not only has he uh, insulted and rejected his father, this young man's not very wise. <laughs> um, he is thinking with his passions, and he goes out, and he squanders everything. You know, we, we in our culture, one of the mantras of our culture is um, people tell their children to follow your heart. And, and I, there's some of that that's positive. I mean, there can be, I mean, God has certainly put things into our heart. But as Christians, we recognize that a lot of what's in the heart is not good. There are desires in here, there are passions in here that, that, that do not lead to life. And as Christians, we recognize that. So we would say, you know, we don't want to tell our children to follow their hearts. We do, do want them, what we want them is to follow the Lord, who will pour into their hearts all kinds of right desires, right, right passions, right wants. Um, but this young man follows his heart, as it were, and he squanders his inheritance. Well, the first scene closes, and we arrived at Act act 1, scene um, 2. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. I want to pause here and focus on the famine. Um, It is oftentimes that, that, well, in this case, it's adverse circumstances that force this man to sort of wake up to reality. And uh, as Christians, we recognize that God sometimes uses, often uses, adverse circumstances to set the course of our lives, to turn us around, um, to maybe bring out in something, something in us that we didn't even know was there. 
um, it's for many that, that it's not until they get to the end of their rope that they finally repent and turn toward God. Now, I want to say something pastoral about this, and, and this is something that could touch on something that's difficult, um, but I think it's something we need to talk about. N- none of us wants to see the people we love suffer. Nobody wants to see someone suffer. But sometimes, sometimes, suffering and adversity are precisely what a person needs to get his life around, turned around. I mean, that's wh- what happened with this young man. Um, Sometimes we, we can see this play out in the dynamic, um, for those of you who, who have had family members struggle with addiction, and, and the process that often happens within a family is that if you've got um, someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol within a family, initially what the family members do is they sort of they circle the wagons, gather in, and they do everything they can to put in what I would call a false floor. In other words, they put in all sorts of mechanisms to keep the addict from having to reap the consequence of his or her decisions. And on a human level, you can understand why that happens, because they care for the person. They don't want to see them suffer. They don't want to see them face adverse circumstances. But again, as Christians, we know that often it is adverse circumstances that help turn a person's life around. Um, so I don't want to make a, you know, a, 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 a general blanket. I never want to make a general blanket pastoral statement about, because every person's situation is different, but I think we often want to be mindful of, are, are we putting in false floors in an attempt to protect someone we love, but are we doing it in such a way that maybe is enabling um, some bad decisions? That's something we just have to look at, have to look at and be careful about and prayerful about. Well, this younger man, he faces adversity, and it's the catalyst for the turnaround in his life. This is where he begins to go into the cul-de-sac and to make a U-turn. So picking up now at verse... Um, well, actually, let me pause here, but just, I should have said this. To get a sense of how low he has gone, of course, and you all know, um, this man, Jesus, is a Jew speaking to Jews. How do Jews feel about pigs? Unclean. I mean, it, it is like sort of the, if you want the, the poster animal for unclean, I mean, pigs are it. And this man is slopping, taking care of pigs, you know, in, in, down in the slop with the pigs. I mean, it. it you couldn't get any lower than this. You couldn't. But anyway, picking up um, at verse 17. When he came to himself, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, the reality is we don't know in what tone Jesus is telling this parable. We we don't have anything about tone. We don't have anything about inflection. So we don't know, is the son here rehearsing a speech um, that is true repentance? I mean, is that what's going on? Has he really come to the point where, or is he just sort of working up something that he thinks will pull on his father's heartstrings? We don't know. But the great thing is, for the parable to work, you don't need to know. You don't need to know the tone. What we do know is that at least he has enough sense to realize um, that, that he has no right to come back into his father's household as a son. His only hope for coming back in is as a hired servant. And, and let me explain here. The father, with this kind of household, with this kind of wealth, probably would have had house servants that would have been maybe attached really to the family. 
But that's not the kind of servant that the son wants to come in as. He's saying a hired servant. In other words, make me an apprentice maybe of some, some tradesman in the village. I can come in from time to time and be a, an apprentice. And I mean, this is sort of the, you know, the lowest of the low. But I'll work off my debt to you. I'll work off uh, the inheritance that I've squandered. So that, that at least is the thought process. That we can be confident about. So he's rehearsing his line. And here we arrive at um, the dramatic third and final scene of Act One. The young man arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now at this point, um, the parable in a sense matches the first two. Lost sheep, lost coin. That which was lost is found. Um, and it's the second act that's really going to bring it home for the Pharisees. We're not there yet, but that's going to be the second act. But, but looking at scene three, I have to say, whenever I get to this passage, when I read it in the quiet of my study, um, I have to say, it, 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 I feel moved to tears, um, especially when I get to that point where um, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off. The father goes out to him. Now, some of you have lived your life in the straight and narrow all the way. Thanks be to God. God bless you. But for those of us who have wandered and have wondered how far have I wandered from God, the fact that the father sees him a long way off, sort of like these sinners and tax collectors, they are still a far way off. But what does the father do? He runs to them like he runs to this young man. Feel the weight of that. He runs. Now, why is that such a big deal? Again, some of you who've studied this passage will, will know that, that men in this culture don't run. <laughs> now, little boys might run. Little girls might run. Women might even run after their children, you know, if they're, they're running after someone who's running away, running into danger. But men in this culture don't run. And of course, the reality is men in our culture, now they may go jogging, but, but you don't see a man in his dress shoes running down the street. And I have to confess um, that I'm bad about doing just that, running around. I used to be have enough uh, sense to be embarrassed by running around in a collar in my dress shoes. But now, you know, I'm 42. I just don't care anymore. So I just run. Um, but, but I know it, it looks silly because, you know, men, are, we, don't, we don't run around. You don't run. You know, it, it, it's undignified. <laughs> um, but the father runs. He runs. Um, even more so in this culture. I mean, this man, he's, he's wearing, you know, a tunic or, or a robe of some sort. He's going to have to lift that thing up to go running. I mean, I feel embarrassed just climbing up into the pulpit, having to lift up, you know, my cassock and feel like, you know, the, something about this just isn't right. I mean, you've got to. But, but the father, he doesn't, he doesn't mind shaming himself at the vision of his son. He doesn't wait for his son to grovel. He goes to him. So goes to him. 
But not only um, does he, the father, shame himself, in a sense, by, by, by running after his son, making a, a scene, um, but really he shames himself by receiving his son. Now, as you all know, the older brother is going to be very angry about that, and we're going to talk about that. But the reality is, really, the, the whole town probably would have been angry at the father because the father is not upholding you know, the standard. He's, the father is not upholding custom and culture. So, so not only is the father bringing the anger of his son, his elder son, but really he would have been bringing the contempt of the whole town on himself. But what's driving the father? Love. And, and what's the word that's used here? It's compassion. Yeah, compassion. Compa- which is love. In fact, um, let's lean into that word for just a moment. Compassion. Let's, let's look at the those two parts come the, the the prefix meaning with passion meaning what what is passion the passion of Christ grace love but actually no it's, it's it, it and that is one of the one of the sort of the, the the connotations but but passion originally would have meant what suffering suffering have you ever wondered why do they call it the passion of Christ I mean in our culture we talk about passion you two people kissing you know on the screen I mean that's passion right well, then why is it the passion of Christ? I mean, nobody's kissing anybody. I mean, why? Because passion meant suffering. Suffering. So compassion is a willingness to suffer with someone. The father is shaming himself. He's going down into his son's shame. The son is a mess. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet. I mean, even the disciples and Jesus, who were poor, wandering preachers, even they had shoes. But the son didn't have shoes. He's dirty. He's unclean. But the father is driven by his willingness to suffer with his son. Well, the son begins to rehearse his line. Oops, let me go back. Um, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, I don't know if you notice this or not, but he doesn't get through the whole line. Remember, there was the whole second part about, you know, I could become a servant. So, well, the dad cuts him off. Um, as if to say, we're not going to hear any of this working your way back into my favor, working your way back to my table, working your way back into my kingdom. No, I'm going to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. Put my robe upon him, the best robe. That's, his, that's the father's robe. The father is doing for the son what the son cannot do. He's bringing him back into the household by covering him with that robe. Put a ring on his finger, I presume the signet ring, but some kind of ring, a, a symbol of, of high standing. Put shoes on his feet, provides for just his most basic needs. Son, you won't be earning your way back into my household. I will restore you. He then kills the fatted calf. Um, this is, again, a culture where you don't have meat on for every meal you rarely have meat and this fatted calf would have been um this would have been i mean you you don't you just don't eat something like that unless it is the kind of occasion that we're witnessing i mean this is a sort of once in a year kind of celebration the whole town would have been invited everyone would have heard the news to come in for this celebration means that there is no sin beyond the father's forgiveness no sin beyond the father's. You know, I, again, I don't know where you all are, whether you all fit 
in the older brother or younger brother category. But if there's someone here today in the younger brother category, you think, you know, I know God forgives sins, but I, I mean, I did this one thing or I had this one. There's no sin beyond his forgiveness. And again, verse 24 ties this parable to the other two. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. I think we'll stop here, and then next week pick up with um, Act 2. Act 2. Um, so let me turn off my alarm that's about to go off. And I can tell Jeff that I started on time and I ended on time. Then we'll close in a prayer. And y'all tell, tell them that I... I, I